and welcome to another episode of Dinat Megasis podcast. We have been out for a very very long time, but we are back with a few changes. Most notably, a change in our co-host. So yes, I've got a new co-host who is really really good with his football takes, and that's what we need here. So I would like to welcome our new co-host, Danny, to the show. Welcome, Danny. Uh, thank you for for having me, Rithik. It's it's a pleasure to be asked to do this, and I'm sure we'll have a a good time with with. Well, you say my takes are good. We'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if if you not follow Danny, you should you know follow him on Twitter at calcio underscore Danny, and he also co-hosts the Pure Football podcast along with his mates Rhys Jenkins. Uh, who cover you know the Scot the Scottish national team, which is quite interesting. Scotland are promoted, while England have just got themselves relegated. So he's probably in a good mood at the moment. Uh, we're not we're not quite there yet. We need to not lose against Ukraine, which by the time this has gone out, it's probably happened. So I'll either be annoyed or or happy. But England were relegated, so that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's anyway a win win situation. I I mean, so. Yes, in this episode, we are going to cover a wide variety of topics, most especially some Premier League clubs, and we'll start with Newcastle. Newcastle have been the subject of huge controversy last season when they got owned owned by the Saudi fund that is a BIF. Uh, there's still a lot of backlash, definitely, most definitely. It's sports washing. There's there's no question. There's no doubt to that point, but. On the pitch, they've looked massively, massively good since Eddie Howe got appointed. They started the season. I mean, they started last season under Steve Bruce. The football that you know Newcastle played were horrific. You could watch them and you could you know really hate the sport. It was it was so so bad. And the results really showed that too. They struggled. I think they got what five points under Steve Bruce uh, the first few games. And since Eddie Howe came in, they've been rejuvenated they've they've had like really good records we'll come to that soon but danny what what do you make of you know the ownership change in newcastle first and foremost yeah i mean i've been quite vocally against obviously what it is like you said it is sports washing it's it's someone using a football club to basically improve their image and, and that's bad we try not to focus too much on that i guess because you want to look at the footballing things and what they've done um it is an interesting project because they obviously have more money than anyone else in the world so it's a case of how they sort of grow into a, a, a good team because they haven't been for such a long time so yeah so this summer i think they had a massive outlay on on who they brought in <coughs> sorry um, and, and barely really sold anyone for actual money. So you can already see this sort of shift. Newcastle used to pick up sort of players because they were selling big or they used to pick up players because they were out of contract. But that's not really going to be the case anymore. It's going to be huge transfer fees and huge um, outlays of money in terms of wages for players. So while we should know how sort of bad the ownership angle is, we also do have to focus on on the actual sporting project. Absolutely, and we will talk about transfers in a bit. But when Steve Bruce was in charge last season, I think it was what uh, five points in 
12 games for Newcastle, if I'm not wrong. And that was like one of the worst starts ever in Premier League um, for any club. And Eddie Howe ended the season with 13 wins, 5 draws and 9 losses, which is quite impressive. And since Eddie Howe took over Newcastle, if you look at the results or if you look at the table from the time Eddie Howe took over Newcastle, they are 6th, which is quite impressive. You know, they're above Manchester United in that regard with, with you know, two points per game at home. That's 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 an impressive record. And I think that was massively helped by the transfer business in January. The signing of Bruno Guimaraes from Lyon. That's that's been one of my best, you know, signings of last season. That that really, 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 you know, elevated their level in midfield. And Guimaraes without a doubt, has been one of the best signings as well in the league in the last one or two years because in just half a year, he's racked up a lot of goals. He's been massively, you know, influential in Newcastle's midfield. I And I, I honestly think that he's arguably a top five centre midfielder in the league right now, despite being injured recently. So, like you mentioned, they don't really have a cap on money right now, but they really spent wisely in the transfer market, though. I mean, when you look at clubs who have unlimited funds, you know, or probably sort of that angle, they kind of tend to, you know, go big initially, try to, you know, they, they, they don't want to, you know, sequentially follow those building blocks and they just directly want to get to the top. But with Newcastle, what we've seen is that they've been patient. They, they made Eddie Howe their manager and they've given him the players that he wanted and they've not kind of massively spent a lot Initially in January, they bought Gimarish, they bought uh, Chris Wood, Dan Byrne and Matt Target on loan as well. So they did that in January. They they got a good finish at the end of season. But coming to the summer, I think they spent quite huge this time. They, they've not made any sales, but Sven Botman as the centre-back, uh, you know, making Matt Target's deal permanent. Nick Pope being picked up from a relegated Burnley was a massive deal. And all these costs, like, approximately 60 million and then the big money signing of Alexandre Isaac from Real Sociedad for 63 million and 120 125 million spent in total you know which is which is quite huge for a club like Newcastle but I think the signings have been impressive they've kind of had like a normal start to the season but what what do you make of the signings though do do, do you think this this probably this squad is capable of probably finishing in the top half this season yeah, absolutely. I think we have a case where where clubs like Man City, PSG, Chelsea, even though that's going back a bit further, kind of walked so Newcastle can run. So Newcastle have seen Man City go out in their first few years and try and get people like Rubinho and 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 players like that, and it, it's kind of it doesn't slow down the process, but it doesn't speed it up either. So I think Newcastle have had the benefit of not being one of the first clubs to kind of do this or get this big influx of cash and then and then go from there. So I think they they have been really smart with it. They've got Ashworth from Brighton. I know he wasn't in effect the sporting director this summer, but he will be from from now on. So I think they have recruited wisely. Uh, they've s- trimmed down a lot of the squad that just wasn't good enough. I mean, they've permanently got rid of players like Dwight Gale and Federico Fernandez who are old probably on a bit of have a higher wage 
and aren't going to really impact you in the Premier League. And then they've they've shipped out quite a lot of those sort of players on loan as well. So like Jeff Hendrick, Kieran Clark, they they're not Premier League level players, but they were starting for Newcastle for a long time. So they've they've gone out and they've actively got them off the wage bill and then brought in players like Botman, who was I think he he actively wanted to go to Milan in the summer, but Newcastle's spending power was just too big for for Milan to deal with. So he ended up in, in Tyneside. And then obviously you've mixed two really good young talents and Isaac and Botman with, with a bit of Premier League experience and, and not just Premier League experience, but players that are going to positively impact and improve Newcastle, like Nick Pope, who's a great goalkeeper, shot-stopping-wise, anyway and then you've signed Matt Target who did the job for you for six months from January Um, you make that permanent so yeah I think what they've done with the squad is is really smart they've not tried to sort of reach for the stars too soon and, and, and fall back they've they've made a natural progression and I think they're now in that sort of well it's where Leicester have been for a few years I doubt Leicester will be there this year but like that sort of sixth to tenth anywhere in there they're probably going to fall alongside a Brighton or someone like that that's the level they are and that's a natural progression because they can then build from there they can go to Europa League then to Champions League then to challenging for league titles so yeah I think they've had a really smart summer they've also got a wee bit younger in terms of the squad build-up which is what they needed to do because it was sort of an old poor squad so yeah it's really smart and I think well this is just really the start of of their spending power yeah and that's that's that what you said about Dan Ashworth as well I think picking him up from Brighton is is very smart Uh, and it kind of shows that they have a plan back there and it's not just you know just spend a lot of money get a lot of players and there's a clear direction at Newcastle which is to be seen and the way they've you know added their squad I think they've kind of they kind of lack a right-sided attacker or a right right winger to be honest, and probably at the end of the window, I think they were linked with Christian Pulisic and also Lucas Moura from Spurs as like a short-term fix for that right wing role, and I think that's that's kind of the only position where I think they seriously lack quality. Uh, I mean, I. No disrespect to Miguel Miron, he's he's massively, you know, uh, talented and he is amazing. He's energetic. He runs around the pitch an awful lot. Uh, he his work rate is massive. He presses a lot. But I think they could probably do much better than Miguel Miron uh, on that right side, which probably I guess we can see them going for after the World Cup in the January transfer window. But even tactically speaking, I think. Eddie Howe at Bournemouth has like always shown that he he has like a certain setup. A four four two is what he mostly used at Bournemouth, and I think he found a lot of success with that too. Apart from the last season where he completely faltered, and and he's kind of that manager where if he has you know a proper guy to look at the transfers and things, uh, you know, and leave the football to him, he he probably does well. And I think that's that's been. You know, very evident from Newcastle's results. Even tactically, I'm, I was I was quite interested and you know quite excited to see how Joy Linton's transformed his Newcastle career. He probably was labelled as a flop under Steve Bruce, and the way he's been transformed into a centre midfielder uh, along with Kimaresh 
and you know long staff or even if shelby's charts it's it's been quite a revelation isn't it yeah certainly on the joe linton front i think he was sort of misunderstood and labeled as like this number nine he was i think he was given that shirt when he first joined and i don't think that was ever the player he really actually was he is sort of that hybrid between an attacker and a midfielder and I think that Eddie Howe noticed that and he also, he's now shifted in him to sort of like a left central midfield role. So you get the best of both worlds with Joe Linton and that's really, really impressive. On Newcastle in general, I think that Eddie Howe had this sort of reputation. It was really good going forward as a manager at Bournemouth, but defensively really weak. And I think that he's he has kind of addressed that at Newcastle. I mean, if you look at, at their like possession numbers against the bigger teams they will sit back and they will absorb pressure and they don't need the ball to impact the game I mean they scored three goals against City with about 30% possession they caused Liverpool issues with 29% possession but then if you flip it over and look at them games like Forest at home or or Wolves away they dominate the ball they they have about 60% so he can switch it up he's shown to be quite tactically diverse even if He's playing the same sort of system. He can tweak it to be either be not defensive, but play in trans- transition, or he can he has the players now to to dominate the ball and cause real issues to a team. So that's that's really interesting to see that he can do both because I think for a long time he was labelled as an attacking manager, but not someone that would address any defensive issues. And he has he has done that at Newcastle. Talking about that City game, I mean, I just remember that I've not mentioned. Kieran Trippier's signing at all. And he's, again, another player that's been, you know, really, really good since signing for Newcastle. And I think when he's been out, they've kind of looked a bit, you know, dull in terms of building up and, you know, causing attacking threat as well. So I think that's that's another player that, that's massively benefited them, the experience that he has uh, uh, in the Premier League. And he's also played for Atletico. He's played at the top level for England as well. So that was another brilliant signing. And like you mentioned, the defensive side of the game has massively improved, which is which is quite unlike Eddie Howe <laughs> from his Bournemouth days. But yeah, it, it, it all looks really good for them at the moment. And and one, one final question, Danny, before we move on to the next topic. Where do you see Newcastle finishing this season? And realistically speaking, what, do you think is a successful season for them? Because for me, I guess a conference league finish, maybe seventh, or even if they finish eighth, would be a successful season for them, considering the investment they've done and they're likely to do more in January as well. Yeah, I think also on the Kieran Trippier thing, he gives you set-piece threat and Newcastle are, I think, we talk, they were ranked second in the league in terms of XG from set-pieces. They've only scored two, which isn't the highest, but they do cause a threat with teams with that with that set-piece delivery of Kieran Trippier. And I think there was a stretch last season where he was scoring free kicks just before he got injured. So he offers them that a successful season for Newcastle. I don't think really... Well, league placement does come into it, but I think anywhere in between 7th and 10th is an improvement. I think we just need to see them looking like a cohesive football team and causing the bigger teams issues and I think we have seen that so far they've only lost one game but they've also only won one game in the league so they're drawing an awful lot of football games that will happen when you're sort of 
transitioning into a, a better team. They're, I mean, they're dominating XG in most of their games. So I think we'll see results sort of fall their way and they will recruit, like you said, in, in January. I think overall, I'd say anywhere in between 7th and 10th and some solid cup runs might do them some good. But yeah, I think improvement is is just on the pitch rather than league position for them for the time being. Yeah, you've, you've like been spot on there with that take. So we'll move on from Newcastle now to another very interesting club who's, who's kind of had a different approach to, to their recruitment and their signings, which is Southampton. And it's quite interesting to see the transfer window that they've had. I mean, you would have been really happy with Southampton signing Joe Arivo, especially after his you know, impressive spell at Rangers in the last few years. And that's probably one of my favorite signings of the summer as well, because I am a huge Joe Arivo fan and I've liked him at Rangers and I feel he's, he's going to be a really, really good player for Southampton too. But if you just look at their transfer window, Bazunu, who's 20 years old, Romeo Lavia from Man City, who's 18, Sekou Mara from Bordeaux, who's just 19. Then Kaleta Kar from Marseille, who's 25. Bella Kocha from Bochum, who's just 20 again. Joe Arrivo, obviously 25. Then you have Larios, Erosi again, Man City Youth, who are, what, 18 and 19. Then finally, Maitland Niles on loan from Arsenal, who's 25. So the way they've recruited is mostly youth, which kind of, you know, it's there's this like a huge influx of youth in the team right now. And... They're a very fun side to watch as well under Ralph Hasenhutl. But I think most of the signings that they made have been from the City Academy. Probably a courtesy of Joe Shields signing for them as the head of senior recruitment. He's he was the academy he was the head of academy recruitment at City as well before he left for Southampton this summer. So there's some kind of connection there. And City kind of I think added buyback clauses as well into their into the deals of these youngsters. But overall 66 million spent from Southampton and they're a club that don't spend a lot. They're, they're, they're kind of being a club under Hassan Hootel who, you know, maximizes the resources that they've had. And I wouldn't say that they've been really successful because they've been in the bottom half of the table. They've lost. The nine nils never go without mentioning as well the nine goal uh, defeats that they've had every season. But I think there's still a tricky squad and this probably could be Ralph Hassenhotel's last dance, perhaps. So what, what what do you make of the summer window that Southampton's had? Because I think getting a lot of young players, although it is quite interesting, it's probably a huge risk as well. Yeah, I mean, it's probably the most interesting transfer window of any team. The average age of the players they brought in was like 22.6 years old and the average age of players they shipped out was 26.6. So they've got incredibly younger as, as a squad. And like you said, Hasenhutl's been there for a few years now and, and he's he's had moments where he's looked great and had moments where obviously it's not gone to plan. I don't want to mention the 9 nils because it feels harsh. But yeah, that's just, a, I think, a product of the way he has football is you could get obliterated by better teams but it will cause problems um some of the signings are are incredibly exciting i mean bazunu getting a chance at top level football is great he's modern goalkeeper he played against scotland the other night so i watched him then for ireland and he's he is such a talented goalkeeper uh 
Romeo Lavia is the future. <laughs> like that, he is an incredible player. I think he's now out for quite a while with injury, which is sad to see and might cause Southampton some problems. And then a new Armel Bellacott chap was good when I saw him nutmegging and step over in Casemiro against United. And that's a 20-year-old centre-back that's come from the Bundesliga, which doesn't have the greatest reputation when it comes to defending. So, <laughs> yeah. like, I, I think it's really fun and exciting. I did, in my predictions, have them to go down this year because it's hard to be the youngest squad in the league and not play that sort of set-back and con- don't concede. Like, Southampton will concede a lot of goals, but... They've also looked so much better than they have in the past few years at the start of the season. They've been incredibly fun. They have been taking over, I think they're called Sport Republic, their new owners. So there's obviously a project in place there. I don't think it depends too much on them going down because when your team is that young, there's still a future. They probably won't have to sell off big assets. So yeah, I think it's really something to look out for. And I think we probably will see the end of Hassenhutl at some point in the next few years just because it'll be a natural end to things. But I wouldn't be shocked if Southampton went out and got an exciting new manager as well. Like It just seems like the squad and the club have like a plan in place now to go forward, which is exciting. Yeah, and I mean, with the with the natural perceptions that we had in the first few weeks of the Premier League, it's quite funny to see that Southampton are below Bournemouth in the table, which is which is quite you know funny because of all the perception that Bournemouth had and they've sacked their manager Scott Parker as well. So I think that early the first win against Aston Villa is proving to be you know really really boosting for Bournemouth in terms of where they stand in the table at the moment. Although they've you know considered like 19 goals and have the worst goal difference in the league, courtesy of that huge loss to Liverpool. But I think Southampton, like you said, um, it's. A, I mean, you, I, I heard that you you have them as you know one of your favourites to go down, but I still think that Hassan Hotel, with all the work that he's done in the last two, three years, I feel that he's, he's, he's that kind of a manager who, who has the ability to get the best out of players, in a sense. Uh, kind of, sort of like uh, an older version of Jurgen Klopp, I would say. I mean, it's not he's not very flexible in terms of tactics. And that's something that I found. I'm, 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 you, people could call me out for this, but that's what I've kind of realized watching him play. It's it's quite you know it's most often the same thing that he goes with, and it's very effective too with the press that they have. But the signings that they made even now, although they've gone young, it is quality. I think players like Lavia have shown how good they can be if they've given they've they're given like a first team opportunity and I think he's been one of the best players one of the best midfielders in the league so far this season and it's it's pretty sad that he's he's out injured at the moment Bella Kochap as well he's just 20 and due to his performances he's kind of earned a national team call up as well for this international break which is, again, quite impressive. So I think they kind of have the players. Seku Mara, another player, I, I really, really like Mara because uh, I kind of feel that he would really, really compliment someone like Che Adams if if they still go with the 4-2-2-2. And what's interesting for me, though, is that they have the seventh best defense in the league this season in terms of expected goals against which is quite unlike a Hassan Hotel side. I know it's 
too early this season to call anything or you know to do any proper analysis based on the xt numbers or the xta numbers but i think early signs of early signs are that they are probably getting tighter defensively i think salisu and belakocha have performed like a very formidable center back pairing uh, bazunu as well in goal is quite impressive too but i think the woes for them are going forward they've kind of not scored a lot and even in terms of xg they are probably third worst in the table and i think they've kind of had issues uh, you know getting the ball in the back of the net this season but i do see them improving in that regard i think there's, there's like a lot of signings once again and it's probably taking a little time for them to gel in and their performance versus aston villa recently was pretty pretty poor because that's one of the worst premier league games that i've ever watched in terms of overall quality both the teams were quite bad but southampton just lost the game because they just they just couldn't you know they just couldn't really break aston villa who were quite literally average too so you would have these kind of performances from southampton uh, quite often that like we've seen in the past but it's it's quite it's quite good that they've signed these young players and players that have quality because even if they end up replacing Ralf Hasan Hotel they have a good core of young players now and Southampton are an, a kind of club that you know buys young players and then you know sells them for big money we've seen that in the past with you know we, us with us supporting Liverpool we obviously know how much Southampton has pleased us over the years but i think the, with the players that they have they are kind of you know solidifying that similar model once again after probably a few years of you know have not having uh players that probably bring them a lot of money either in terms of sales so i think like you mentioned the project is kind of getting better and it wouldn't really surprise me to see hasan hotel getting the sack a little bit early maybe sometime this season if results go south because there's been rumors already that his job is not as secure as it was probably a year back but if Hassan Hotel was to be replaced Danny do you have any managers in mind that you would like to see at Southampton yeah uh, that's a that's a good question one I'm prepared for um i feel like they might look towards uh is it Knutson at, at Bodo Glimt I think he was recently linked to the Brighton job after Potter left which we'll get onto um, obviously Deserbi is gone there um, so him I feel like you, there's been a natural sort of move from Celtic to Southampton in the past and Postacoglu is one of the hottest like managers in Europe that's not a, in, a, in the top five leagues but i think he might aim higher if he was to leave celtic than southampton i feel like they might shop in the the bundesliga or somewhere around there like they have in the past obviously with the new ownership it's hard to tell what sort of club southampton will be i think they want to be sort of that multi club model i city group but not to that scale so i think we'll see them being smart and i wouldn't be surprised if they looked at maybe the scandinavian leagues or the the bundesliga or somewhere around there for a young manager that's progressive and can sort of shape younger players any names you think of with what before leipzig you know went ahead and signed marco rosa i probably thought that they it he would be like a nice fit here at uh, southampton considering how jesse marsh has done at leeds so far uh, so 
he would have been like a really good you know pick for me but uh in if if they can convince matthias chaisel from salzburg to you know uh, come to the premier league and man in southampton that would be a really really cool appointment i would say and you know have that kind of setup here at southampton with the young players that they've got in their hands um so yeah i would i would really love to see someone like matthias chaisel come and manage southampton but it's a long shot because someone managing a red bull club is probably destined to again uh, probably end up at another red bull club or likely leipzig if they if they end up you know getting rid of marco rosa in case things don't work out there as well so it will be interesting but i think hasan hotel still keeps his job unless things go really bad which i don't think it sh- it will or it should ideally so yeah that that's probably what i think and yes with that we will probably move on to the next topic which again is cram potter to chelsea i mean i am a huge huge potter fan if if i worship a if i worship a potter it's not harry it's cram but i'm so so gutted that he's gone to chelsea instead and i would have really really loved to see him you know manage liverpool one day when jurgen klopp probably you know left the club that probably was you know was what i was praying that potter stays at brighton for 3 4 years and jurgen klopp leaves and potter comes in but it was a long shot anyway and he was destined to get a big club anytime soon and chelsea i think with the new ownership things have been quite you know brisk with thomas tuchel in the last two or three months and we we've, we've seen the athletic articles as well where they they in, in detail explain the relationship between thomas tuchel and todd bowley and how you know things got worse over the last month or so and tuchel losing you know the dressing room as well in a in a way so what what do you make of this whole appointment uh, danny and you know tactically speaking as well what, what do you think potter brings to chelsea yeah i think it was sort of a shock when everyone found out that tuchel had gone so early in the season but at the same time i think maybe it did make some sense the football was really bad towards the end of last season and they haven't started the season well they spent a lot of money in the summer i think the most of anyone so to sack someone that quickly after sort of backing them in the summer i mean a lot of those guys are or win now like Koulibaly, Raheem Sterling and they fit the way that that Tuchel kind of wanted to build this Chelsea team. So that was a shock. Potter is Potter was going to get snapped up event sooner rather than later. I'm surprised he went mid-season and I'm surprised he went to Chelsea just because we don't really know much about Todd Bowley's leadership and it has been a bit scattered gun at the at the start. There's obviously the stories about Ronaldo and there's been a few things like you said in the athletic articles which seems like he wants to really control the situation but i think if you look at the squad it does make sense for potter to, to take on that sort of team i mean it's there are the players there to play his five at the back three at the back whatever you want to call it system he has player a player there that he had previously in cucarella who can sort of help him get his methods across i think that might help him and then obviously you have a lot of talent in Reece James you have Fafana that you've brought in from Leicester who can slot into that right center back role so i think it does make sense from a squad fit that Potter went there 
I am surprised, but I think that that's a good fit for, for the two. It's just a question of, of the ownership, I think. For me at Chelsea, we don't really know enough about it yet to know if they can be a success. I mean, like you mentioned there with the Ronaldo thing, I think it was quite, you know, uh, quite odd that they got linked uh, with Ronaldo in the summer and there was, there was this rumour of Todd Bowley being very much interested in getting Ronaldo in. And, of course, they lost uh, a couple of players to Barcelona. Rafinha, ex- exactly, is probably one of the main guys, I think, is, is going to be a big miss uh, because he's, he's, he's one hell of a player and I think Barcelona got a really, really impressive uh, footballer and he would have been amazing for Chelsea. But unfortunately, they lost him and Koundé as well, I think, probably would have improved Chelsea. But, I mean, they've signed Fofana, who's, who's quite quite good as well, apart from the injury woes that he's had in the last two years. So, I think they've kind of They've kind of bought in some really good names. Obama Yang as well, probably on a short term, is is a very shrewd signing. And I mean, I know it's like too early, but I kind of watched like the Salzburg game. Um, I think I started like at like at the five minute mark of the game. But it was quite interesting to see how easily Marco Correa like, you know, went about in the game. It was like you know, a bunch of people trying to learn something while Kukureya was kind of that guy who, who's who's like the know-all in the class who, you know, whenever the teacher asks you a question, Kukureya stands up and, you know, he's the guy who gives all the answers. So he was very comfortable in the system. I think he played as the left-sided centre-back for them in the game along with Thiago Silva and uh, Fana uh, with Reese James as the right winger and Raheem Sterling as the left wing back which is which was quite interesting to see uh, quite quite similar to what Porter did with uh, Leandro Trossard Drayton and it will be interesting to see if he continues with the same you know same approach with Sterling as the left wing back and I think having Sterling as that left wing back also really helped him in a sense because uh, you could see Kukurea dropping a bit wider on the left Thiago Silva moving a bit left as well while Jorginho dropping in uh, to receive the ball uh, from the centre backs or Kepa from or from Kepa basically, and there were some really good you know moves that they had some quick passing and I really really kind of liked the high press as well. But what kind of stood out for me was the way players were you know uh, linking up at times under Tuchel the football you you could probably say that the football was getting quiet boring and stale and the attack attack was one of the main you know uh, issues for Chelsea or Thomas Tuchel basically and that's that's been the issue for a while but with Potter who's had like a really good impact with Brighton uh, with the likes of you know Pascal Gross, Leandro Trossard he's got the best out of Daniel Welbeck as well at Brighton which is quite impressive and with the players that Chelsea have it's quite it's quite natural that he could you know elevate his you know his success rate from Brighton, and with the likes of Kai Havertz, uh, Obama, and maybe Christian Pulisic as well, I think he he's got like a wide variety of options too. So it's it's it was interesting to see how he approached the game against Salzburg. It's just a single game; they got a draw. It's a, it was his first game, but it's going to be fun to see what he does. Furthermore, and I kind of feel that he's going to continue with the three five two more or less 
but but in terms of midfielders um danny i mean he started with jorginho as that central person just you know dropping deep and receiving the ball from the center backs uh, progressing and you know starting that first phase of build up but in front of him he had kovacic on the left and mason mount on the right and mason mount is a player who's kind of had a lot of backlash from the chelsea fans in the last few months so assessing chelsea's midfield who do you think starts for them if it's a 352 i think that mount will always be there i don't i'm I, i'm quite a big fan of him i know he gets quite a lot of hate on social media but he he'll do exactly what the manager asks of him he's really talented he'll roam about and he'll find space you'll always find space between the lines so i think he's always going to start in that sort of like left central midfield role i think kovacic is probably chelsea's best midfielder or at least most consistent kante's there but he has a lot of injury issues and i i I think he is now starting to become a bit more inconsistent as he as he gets older. And then you have Jorginho. So I think it would be Jorginho, Kovacic and Mount to start most weeks. Uh, it's frustrating, especially as a Scottish person, that Billy Gilmore went to Brighton to work under Potter and they went on a permanent deal and now Potter's at Chelsea and Gilmore's at Brighton. So he never got that chance to really sure he could do it at the top at the very top level but he's under deserving now which will be interesting in its own right so i think yeah i think i didn't see the salzburg game but i think looking at their options it would be mount jorginho and kovacic that will start in that sort of three in midfield unless he he kind of mixes it up and plays someone out of position I mean, at Brighton, he he did have Moses Caicedo sit deep and kind of act as the ball winner, you know, recycling position. And I think there is a decent chance that he probably tries to go for Moses Caicedo in this in the in the winter transfer window after the World Cup. Uh, I I probably won't rule that out. But what do you think of Conor Gallagher's role at the moment? I kind of feel that he is possibly going to be a really interesting piece for Chelsea especially with the way Potter is operated at Brighton so what do you think kind of Gallagher's future is yeah i think that he's had a bit of a tough transition to going from crystal palace where you're not dominating the ball and you don't need many touches to impact the game to chelsea which is possession dominant and you're going to have a lot of the ball. I don't think Conor Gallagher is the sort of guy that will thrive in that sort of environment. So if Potter can put him into a system, which I wouldn't doubt Potter could do, to get high, a high impact from Gallagher with not many touches, then he becomes a useful part of that sort of Chelsea team. I could see him, depending on the system he used, playing behind a striker. Sort of if you look at maybe... John, where John McGinn plays for Steve Clark's Scotland team, he plays off an an attacker in sort of a more well forward role, put it like that. Whereas John McGinn for Aston Villa plays deep, so you can sort of shift the role. Where if you can get Gallagher higher up the pitch and arriving in the box, then you're going to get a lot of impact out of him. But if you ask him to pick up the ball and from deep to find the pass, and then follow that, he's not really that sort of guy. So. 
I don't see him as a starter in the short term for for Chelsea, and I don't I don't think he's suited Tuchel. But I think that Potter may be a better manager for him. But it it's, remains to be seen. I think that Gallagher makes more sense if he was at a top club to be somewhere like Liverpool, where if you slot him in again with Thiago and Fabinho, then he doesn't have to be the guy touching the ball all the time. He can be the guy that's looking for space and making impact with less touches. So, yeah, it's an interesting one, but I don't see him starting. And I, I would like to see if Potter can get the most of him. Yep, that sounds just fair enough. And, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how how Chelsea, you know, start the season or start, uh, you know, their era under Potter. The first game was a draw against Salzburg, but I think it was kind of, you know, the first game was obviously not not very easy. To, even Thomas Tuchel started with a draw against Wolves uh, and he just went on to win the Champions League the same season. So it's going to be interesting to see how they, you know, they approach the future games. They are currently seventh with 10 points and a negative goal difference. Uh, it's not a lot. It's just minus one. But again, it's, it's a negative goal difference and it's something that, you know, would obviously worry a club like Chelsea. So, yeah, it's the next few weeks are going to be interesting. And, of course, the World Cup is coming. So, we have an intense October in terms of club football. A lot of games, especially for the teams that, that play in the Champions League as well. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of games coming up uh, thick and thin. And Potter would have to like, adjust quite fast to Chelsea and probably try to get results as well. But let's move on to the final topic of the podcast today, Danny. And this is one of the clubs that's huge, massive, massive club in Europe and world football, who's kind of really, really struggling at the moment and kind of look clueless. One of the main parties of the European Super League by Mr. I mean, led by Mr. Agnelli. <laughs> the chief of Juventus football club. So it's gone completely wrong for Juventus in the last few years, haven't it? And I think it's it's also the issues off pitch and the same thing has translated on the pitch as well. Massimiliano Aleri, as as much as he's very, you know, talented and uh, with his, you know, huge, huge CV, he's kind of regressed over the last few years and his football has kind of been redundant in the sense. But I've not watched a lot of Serie A this season, so I will probably leave it to you to explain the issue behind Juventus at the moment. And they, they kind of sit, what, seventh in the Serie A table? at the So eighth, with just 10 points in the first seven games. So it's horrible there. Yeah, um, there are a lot of issues, both on the pitch and off the pitch. There's a lot of infighting in the boardroom level, there's rumours that Nedved wants to resign because he's very allegri out, whereas the others aren't. It's the case of whether they can afford to sack Allegri. I mean, if some of the reported figures for getting rid of him and his staff are humongous, like top-tier player transfer level, transfer fee level, ridiculous. So, yeah, kind of focus on the pitch I guess because that's easier to sort of dissect I mean they got rid of Pirlo who there were signs that there was a, a good manager in there I don't know how he's doing in Turkey but there were there was some fun stuff going on they obviously then got back someone that had won 
numerous league titles, got them to two Champions League finals. They looked incredible back then. But a few years out of the game is, is a long time. And Allegri's quite a conservative manager. He's not someone that will look to be progressive or or has this style of play associate, associated to him. He's someone that will sort of adapt. He'll study the game and it, depending on the opposition, it will change. But teams are figuring Juve out really quickly. I mean, they were dominated for the first 45 minutes by Salernitana at home, who have a, a microscopic budget compared to Juventus. Benfica absolutely dominated them in the Champions League. I mean, if we look at that game as an example, Juventus aren't a cohesive unit. So you, they play in, a, in the sort of 3-5-2 in that game, but they don't press. Everyone sort of just stands off and doesn't really put any pressure on the ball. So they're really easy to play through. They've got Vlavic up front, who they spent a lot of money on. And obviously Dybala was a casualty of that, who then left them a free to Roma. And he, he looks completely isolated and he's not the sort of striker that can create something out of nothing. He needs people getting the ball into his feet around the box so he can make an impact because he's he's a high-level finisher, but the rest of his game's pretty unrefined. You've got Kostic, who they brought in in the summer, playing as a left winger at times. That's not where Kostic plays. He's a wing-back. That's a different role. So you're pushing him up higher on the pitch than he naturally has been for years. He's not a young player, so this is a new role to him. And it's impacting this game. He's looked decent at times, but he has been misused. Then you you have a messy midfield. I mean, I know <laughs> going after an American is not great because American Twitter will go for me, but McKenney's just not good enough to be starting for a team like Juventus. He is very poor. Locatelli's good, and, and Rabiot, for all his sins, is, does a job for this Juventus team, which kind of tells you where they're at. And then at centre-back... They lost Delict to Bayern, which was a bit of a shock. I don't think the club planned for him to be going because they also lost Chiellini to LAFC. And then they only signed Gatti, which was back in January, but he is 22 or 23 and, and he's only ever played Serie B football. So to ask him to come in and do a job is, is a stretch. Rugani's there. They brought in Bremer, actually, sorry. Who, who is a very talented player, but he's never played in the back four, which he's been asked to do most weeks. And it's a very different role. He's looked good at times, but there's a lack of protection because of the lack of pressure. So, yeah, there's a lot of issues on the pitch. And I think that there are there's a solid base for that Juventus team to, to be successful. But Allegri is a man out of time. His methods don't work anymore. That it's becoming toxic with him in charge. I mean, I know quite a few UV fans, and every single one wants him out. It's not this sort of decisive, but sorry, it's not this sort of like topic that's split. It's it's something that most UV fans want him out. It just doesn't work. It's not looked good last season for most of it. It's not looked good at all at the start of this season. So, if Juventus can get in a manager that doesn't even have to play well, but can put together a cohesive unit. I think there are good parts of that team, but the parts aren't working right now and the football is, is dire at best. I mean, I've, I've heard rumours that Allegri has like a 36 million uh, clause in his contract if he was to be, you know, sacked. 
which is quite dire because 36 million is huge and a lot of money and to get him sacked for 36 million is is probably you know a huge a huge issue for Juventus at the moment and and I I guess that's probably one of the main reasons why they have still you know not got rid of him yet and probably one of the main reasons why he's going to you know continue for a bit longer as well don't you don't you think yeah I think if money was not an issue he would likely be gone but there is also the fact that the last since Allegri left it's been Sari Pirlo Allegri I think there's also an ego thing in play here where the people that are hiring these guys admit they're wrong again then they'll probably have to follow Allegri out the door very soon so yeah I think it's a money issue I think if Juventus could sack Allegri and go out tomorrow and afford Thomas Tuchel they probably would do that but they can't afford to sack Allegri and if they did you're looking at a cheap option to bring in I think the rumour was the under 21s coach who is a to quote a Juventus man he's played for the club so it's it's a case of of money I think really but it's also a case of of mismanagement at the top level as well. Yeah, and and I think it's going to be interesting to see um, how things pan out in the next month or so, if if results don't go UA's way, and with the football that they they're playing, and at least from what I've read so far, I think I think we are probably going to see Juventus struggle a lot more in the next few months, and I, I'm really not sure if. You know they can really afford finishing outside the top four this time around. That's going to you know massively impact them. Yeah, I think also in like in terms of their Champions League group, they've already lost the first two games, which has never happened before. You, I can't see them beating PSG at home or Benfica away, which then puts them into the Europa League, which is competition they've not been in for a very long time, which is then another loss of income. I think. I think that if they leave it any longer with Allegri, then financial repercussions happen anyway because there are a lot of really good teams in Serie A this year. Napoli are flying, Atalanta look good, good still, Lazio have Sarri and his plans starting to come together. Then you've obviously got Jose's Roma, Inter have had a stuttering start, they're only just above Juve, but they have talented players and you've got Milan who won the league who are incredibly young and smart team at the moment so I think Juventus are a real crucial crossroads in what they do I don't think that they can afford to keep making the mistakes they've been making and I think that there has to be someone to take charge of the situation and sort of really mess up what's happening and start again I don't know if they can afford to do that because money is apparently tight but I think something needs to be done sooner rather than later at the club. Otherwise, they do risk becoming a, a fallen giant, if you will. I mean, they are the biggest club in Italy, so how long that would be for is is I don't know. But but teams are getting smarter around them, and and I think I think they need to do something to change the way things are going. And I think that starts with Allegri getting fired. Interesting, interesting to hear that. I think I think probably it's from from you know from US point of view and. Personally speaking, I guess getting the 36 million, uh, uh, you know, loss is probably better for Juve at the moment. If that means they can get like a better manager, like probably someone like Thomas Tuchel, who's free, and get the most out of the players that they have, and you know, probably 
get in the required place in the summer, in, in the winter transfer window or, or probably next summer and you know build from there. So yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see uh, what happens at U as well. And, and thanks for that detailed you know bit on UA. And that brings us to the end of this episode. We are just back and we are going to be doing this much more often now on a consistent basis, most probably weekly or at least bi-weekly. And thank you once again to everyone for supporting us over the last few months as well, even though we've been quite inactive. And most importantly, thank you so much, Danny, for deciding to co-host the show with me from now on. It's going to be interesting to discuss more and more as we go closer, get closer to the World Cup and lots of football action coming around next month as well. And thank you so much for having me. I hope that didn't sound too ranty at the end there. I have a UV supporting girlfriend, so some of the anger at the club comes out into me, I think. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so no, it's a pleasure and hopefully we can have a lot more interesting discussions from now on on the podcast 100 percent, 100 percent, and i hope scotland probably make it into the a division of nations league i know it the, the thing will be decided by the time we publish this episode but i hope so <laughs> yeah tomorrow night so Thursday yeah. night yeah so, <laughs> so yeah and that's it with the episode this time until next week bye bye and take care everyone <laughs>